All right, like Nathan said, my name's Alyssa. Um, you may know my husband, Andre. He's been around helping Devin and the other guys out with sound. Um, we have three children. Uh, Jada is 11, and Ivy is 9, and Bronte is 5. And we were a part of TNL for 16 years, which was a church that was kind of like a sister church. Um, so we've been around since the beginning of Inglewood, and it's been really exciting to see how you guys have been able to integrate faith and community in this neighborhood, and we're really excited to start something like that similar in our neighborhood. So like he said, when he asked me to teach, he kind of gave me some free reign. Um, he said, maybe choose from your greatest hits, but I'm more like a pinch hitter. Um, so my greatest hits list was like non-existent. But I've been thinking a lot about what's been going on in this world. It's hard to escape, and I'm sure you guys have too. Um, it's been two and a half years now of like discord and disruption and discontent and with the heaviness of the mass shootings and war in Ukraine and the hearings in Congress and these Supreme Court decisions rolling down, it's, the last few months have been really particularly unsettling. And I'm, I'm worried. I worry about that. And these big things are happening and these mountains seem insurmountable. So I was looking at a talk that I gave several years ago in a series we called Empire. So just that word alone, you probably can tell where I'm going with this. Um, so there are around 90 women mentioned in the Bible. And the words they speak comprise 1.2% of the text of the Bible. And throughout history, they've been misunderstood, maligned, mischaracterized, and often just ignored. Their stories contain trauma and grief. And churches often tend to shy away from their narratives and yet, as a woman, I feel a deep affinity for these women, these sisters, whose stories are often at the crux of history and of our faith. When we come across these stories in the Bible, we need to take a hard pause. We need to ask ourselves, why was their story included in Scripture, in the patriarchal, patriarchal society in which the Bible is written, it's remarkable that not only are some women given a place in scripture, two women have books named after them, Ruth, which you guys talked about a few weeks ago, and Esther. I mean, not even King David has a book named after him. And today we're going to talk about one of the most influential women of the Old Testament, Esther. We're going to cover her entire story today, so buckle your seatbelts. I'm going to give you the like a bird's eye view of her story. And fair warning, her story is highly problematic, especially when we're reading it through our own Western and modern lens. But I think it's important to remember that the Hebrews wrote, the Hebrews of the Bible wrote their story, their way, for their time. And that leaves us with a lot of questions about how do we understand who God is after reading this thousands of years after it happened. So I think the question that we have to ask is, is this consistent with how God shows up? And not just in this story, but throughout the Bible from beginning to end. And I think that the character of God that's revealed in the story of Esther is consistent throughout the Bible. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So all that said, let's go. 
So after Moses led the Jews out of Egypt, they eventually end up in Israel where they lived until 587 BC when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians captured Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and exiled the Jews to Babylon, which is in modern-day Iraq. About 50 years later, Cyrus and the Persians conquered Babylon. And so the Persians are well-established by the time we get to Esther. Xerxes is the king, and his empire is huge. It's from India all the way to Ethiopia. The story opens at a huge party that he's been throwing. It's near the end of a long week, uh, week-long banquet, and everyone is quite drunk. And Xerxes requested his king, Vashti, to come join the men's party. And the Bible says it was to show off her beauty, but some scholars think he was inviting her into a highly sexualized environment. And she refused, which ticked Xerxes off. So he got his boys club together, a.k.a. the council. And the best interpretation is that they banished Vashti. And the worst interpretation is that they executed her in order to show how not to defy your husband. So fast forward a couple of years, and Xerxes is hosting a beauty pageant in order to choose a new queen. Now, just to pause here, I listened to Nathan's talk um, about Esther a few years ago, and his um, Freudian slip of booty pageant instead of beauty pageant (laughs) left me just dying. I don't even know if you knew you said that, but (laughs) I can't unhear it now. So (laughs) it's booty pageant. Um, (laughs) Thanks. So he rounds up all these virgins and brings them into his harem to begin a year-long preparation to meet the king. Then they would spend one night with Xerxes, presumably to have sex with him, and then they're placed in with his concubines, where they remain until uh, he decides if and when he ever wants to see them again. So Esther was one of these women. She was a Jew and an orphan and raised by her cousin Mordecai, and Mordecai lived and worked in the palace. Mordecai brought her to them, to this harem, and she made a big impression on everyone, including Xerxes. So after her night with him, he placed the royal crown on his head and made her queen. Mordecai made her promise to keep her Jewish heritage a secret, though. One day, Mordecai discovered a plot to assassinate the king, and he told Esther, and then Esther went to the king, and the plot was averted. Now, we meet the villain Haman. Haman was second in command and very full of himself. So everyone at the palace was supposed to bow down to him, except Mordecai did not. And this made Haman furious. So instead of um, just wasting his rage on one Jew, he decides to kill them all. So he drew lots, and they chose a date nine months away. And of course, this edict that the king issued to kill all the Jews was devastating to them. Uh, Mordecai sent word to Esther and asked her to go to the king. And she was hesitant, though, because she hadn't been called into the king's presence for over 30 days. And to approach the king without being invited was a death sentence. If he was not feeling it that day, you were executed. And I imagine that she might have had Vashti's fate on her mind also. But Mordecai sent her another message, and that's where we're going to jump into Scripture. So let's read Esther 4, 13 through 16. Mordecai sent back this answer. Do not think that because you were in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. 
For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, and even though it is against even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Everything in this story of Esther has been winding up to this moment. It's the turning point. Because in the next chapter, Esther does go to the king. And not only does he not kill her, he offers her anything up to half of his kingdom. So she invites him to a series of dinners, private dinners, just the king and Haman and Esther. Mordecai is finally honored for thwarting the king's assassination, much to Haman's chagrin. And at the second of these parties that Esther throws, Haman is expecting to receive an honor, and instead his evil plot is exposed. And Xerxes is so distressed and angry that he has to walk out of the room for a minute. Haman, seeing the writing on the wall, takes the opportunity to throw himself literally at the feet and mercy of Esther. And then Xerxes walks back in, and it looks as if Haman is assaulting Esther, and Xerxes loses it. Haman is executed immediately. Mordecai is given Haman's position as second in command of the kingdom. Xerxes cannot take back his command to kill the Jews, I guess. Okay, but he allows Esther and Mordecai to issue a counter edict in which they can fight back. And so they're saved from annihilation. They celebrate with this huge raucous party, which became the celebration called Purim, and the Jews still celebrate it today. So that's Esther, 10 chapters. (laughs) So I want to go back and look at the arc of the story because I think there's something very important in the way that each movement in Esther's journey, brings her closer to God and closer to understanding herself. And these movements can help us understand our own story and how God meets us in the midst of it. So let me lay it out for you, and then we can go back and talk a little bit about each movement. So first, there's pain and vulnerability, then prayer and surrender, and finally, God's power and deliverance is revealed. So let's talk about pain and vulnerability, which everyone's favorite topic, right? But in all seriousness, think about Esther for a minute. Sure, she was queen, but think about how she got there. Esther was a woman, a Jew, an orphan, and a foreigner. She was brought into the harem of a a king and forced to have a sexual relationship with him. She was married to a man who banished his former queen on a drunken whim, a fickle king who hadn't requested her presence in 30 days. She had tremendous pain in her past, and her current situation was vulnerable at best. She reluctantly agrees to Mordecai's request, even though it meant she could be killed before even getting a chance to plead her case. And we all have vulnerabilities. Half of us, roughly, in this room are women. Some of us are minorities and people of color. Some of us have issues with our health. And all of us can say that there's been pain in our past Maybe there was abuse and broken relationships, death and loss. Maybe the pain is something that hasn't been done to us, but something we've said or done to others that's caused tension and division. 
I doubt there's one person in this room that can't relate because it's the human experience. It's our experience. Pain and insecurity, fear and doubt. But just to acknowledge that it's real does not, not do anything but leave us to despair. So what Esther did was pray. The Bible says she fasted, but that would have also included prayer. So before she goes to the king, she prays to Almighty God. Her people had just received a death sentence. And Esther, along with countless others in the city, stop and pray for three days. She fully acknowledges her own pain and her vulnerability, saying, if I perish, I perish. I cannot overstate the importance of Esther going to God in prayer. Because in prayer, we treat God as God. It's a soul orientation. We acknowledge our own weakness and depend on God's strength. I don't know about you, but sometimes I have a hard time with prayer. I don't always know what to say or what I'm supposed to do, but I know I need to get there. And a while ago, I was reading Timothy Keller's book, Prayer. And it's dense, but it's a good resource. And one thing in particular stood out to me, particularly because, or probably because, I have had three children in my home who've learned how to speak. And... Keller references Eugene Peterson, who describes prayer as a language we learn, not unlike children. He says, language is spoken into us. We learn language only as we are spoken to. We are plunged at birth into a sea of language. Then slowly, syllable by syllable, we acquire the capacity to answer. Mama, Papa, bottle, blanket, yes, no. Not one of these words was a first word. All speech is answering speech. We were all spoken to before we spoke. So all prayer is a response to God. We respond to God's invitation because God already started the conversation through scripture and through grace. So Eugene Peterson was calling us to recognize the overwhelming previousness of God's speech to our prayers meaning that our prayers should be steeped in scripture and creation because that's where the conversation started. Scripture is the language of God, and we need to immerse ourselves in it. Creation is the language of God, and we need to immerse ourselves in it. Prayer is where our pain and God's power meet. It's where deliverance is revealed. And here's the thing about power. The empire sees power as a weapon to yield. But in the kingdom of God, power is a gift to receive. And Esther knew this. She went to God in desperation, full of pain and fear. And we see God show up. In a series of divine reversals, every situation that seemed hopeless was turned to good. So Vashti comes to the king when he summons her and she is banished. Esther shows up without an invitation, which could mean her death, and she's offered half the kingdom. Instead of Haman receiving honor, Mordecai receives it. Haman comes to Esther's party expecting to be celebrated, but he's condemned instead. And a Jewish woman receives favor over the second most powerful man in the Persian Empire. This is God showing up in divine power on behalf of God's people to offer them deliverance. Esther was in need of deliverance, 
and she needed to be the instrument of deliverance to God's people. Remember that Esther was hiding her identity as a Jew, and she was probably hoping that she could escape their faith. But Mordecai reminded her that she was not immune. She and her household were at risk just as much as the other Jews were. Her life was on the line too. And Esther was the one who was in a position to save her people. Everything that happened to her, her parents' death, her Jewish heritage, her forced marriage to the king of Persia, all those things shaped her and made her into the woman who was able to use her position, her intellect, and her charisma to change history. Like Mordecai said, God would save his people regardless, but for that moment, in that time, Esther was the chosen instrument of God's deliverance. God's power is always given for both and. We receive God's power for both our own deliverance and so that we can offer, use that power on behalf of others. The power and grace and deliverance that we have received is not meant to stay within our own hearts. Like David says in Psalm 23, my cup overflows. And that's how it should be. So here's what it's looked like for me recently. I'm always thinking about what it's like to be the mother of biracial daughters. And my love for my girls is a great strength. But I, when I think about the fact that one day this world will hurt them, that it already has, my love for them is also a big vulnerability. I pray for their hearts and bodies and entrust them back to God daily, sometimes hourly, because this world is not a safe place for a black girl. I learned that black women are four times more likely to die because of childbirth and postpartum complications. Andre's cousin Chi died from a routine postpartum complication, leaving behind two children. So I ask God to come through in power for my daughters, for my family by marriage, for the thousands of black women in this city and the millions of black people, black women in this country. And then this past winter, I had an opportunity to be by my sister-in-law's side as she gave birth to her first baby amongst major complications. It was scary and exhausting, um, but I'm so, so grateful I was able to be there to make sure that she and her baby were okay. So black maternal mortality is a big issue, and I fully realize that I am little old me. I'm not going to be able to help everyone. But listen, because I was able to use my voice, one woman and one precious baby are alive today. So every time I talk to healthcare providers, every time I email my senators and representatives and ask them to pass legislation that protects mothers and babies, the pendulum swings just a little bit. I've seen this happen in this church too. You feel the pain of your neighbors and your community when they don't have enough financial surplus to take care of their bills and to give their kids presents for Christmas and you show up. This is not a huge church and yet the amount of love you lavish on this neighborhood is remarkable. 
the audacity to say, we see that, we feel that, let's change that. It's breathtaking. This is when the kingdom of God is in direct opposition to the empire. In this world, pain and vulnerability is something to hide. Never let your insecurities show because it's kind of embarrassing. Put on a happy face, fake it till you make it. Or insecurity becomes, and pain, it becomes like a spectacle, like reality TV show or something you see on social media, but like, hey, at least they're being real. And power is highly sought after and hoarded because I only have power as long as you don't. And in the kingdom of God, that is completely turned upside down. God chooses the underdog, the outcast, the vulnerable, the brokenhearted. God chose Esther. God chose you and me. And God chooses us not because we are strong and put together and articulate. It's because when the pendulum swings, when a mom and a baby survive, when kids get to open presents on Christmas morning who otherwise wouldn't, when an entire people group are saved from annihilation, we can say, oh no, that's not us. That's God showing up in divine power on behalf of God's people to offer them deliverance. Mordecai told Esther that even if she kept silent, relief and deliverance would come from somewhere else. And that's true today too. The redemptive and restoring and liberating work of Jesus is happening all around us. God will save the people regardless. But let's be a part of God's work. Esther's movement from pain to surrender and finally to the revealing of God's power, that's a movement for us too. So let's allow our own vulnerabilities to lead us to God in prayer. Let's respond to God's word and creation. And let's join in God's powerful deliverance. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for the gift of your word to us. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to join you in your work in this world. We are a broken people with pain and vulnerability. And it's amazing to me that you are able to use that to lead us to you and to allow us to, to utilize your power on behalf of others. God, may we join you in your work so that one day your kingdom will be here on earth as it is in heaven. We love you. We thank you. Amen.